Good day, friends. This is Ray Kozek, the pastor at St. Paul's. Today is day number 37 of the One Year Bible. You're listening to Jesus in the Center One Year Bible podcast. Well, I don't know about you if you're behind in your readings. I'm not behind in my readings, but I'm definitely behind in this podcast. I've been a day late all week long. I don't know what to do. I think it's because I'm just digging in and I'm getting so many details. I need to just take more of a bird's eye view and and look at the big picture. So I hope uh, it's not frustrating if you are doing the podcast that I've been a day behind. I'm going to try to catch up and uh, do that today, hopefully. Well, we pick up today in Exodus chapter 23 to 25 and then Matthew 25. Yesterday we talked a lot about Jesus and his second coming and also the book of the covenant or this covenant that God is making with his people on Mount Sinai. Well, there's a lot here. Hopefully you have some questions and some reflections. Where we pick up with Exodus chapter 23, and it and God says to Moses that three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. And he lists three feasts, the, the feast of unleavened bread, the feast of harvest, and the feast of ingathering. And it's really confusing because there's a lot of other feasts mentioned that the, the Israelites are to keep. And that's because some of them are included. So, for instance, just a, you can look this up, but the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it would have been in the spring, and it would have started with the Feast of Passover. So Passover is not mentioned because it is, it's like the kickoff to the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would have lasted about a week. Also in that feast is what's called First Fruits, and that uh, here in, in Exodus, it says the Feast of Harvest, but that kind of has like two parts to it. The feast, it's called the First Fruits, and it's seven weeks after the first, uh, the first Sunday after Sabbath, so uh, the Sabbath following Passover. So it's kind of complicated, but it would be seven weeks, which is why in English it came, comes across as Pentecost, seven, seven weeks following. So interesting, Jesus was raised on the Easter Sunday. That would have been kind of like the beginning marking point of the of this Feast of Harvest which would mark the, the, the promise of more to come. So we'll, we'll get to that later, but it's kind of interesting. Anyway, so there's, there's three feasts that they're to keep, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Harvest, which sort of begins during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then the Feast of Ingathering in the fall. That would be like our Thanksgiving. And that one also has some other names that you'll, when you read it, it's the same thing. It, it's also called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And that feast, this last one, in gathering booths or tabernacles, it has some sort of pre-feasts that go along with it. One is called the Feast of Trumpets, which would be like their their new year. And that that happens about uh, two weeks before. And then there's five days before. A very important, if it's not a feast, it's a observation, religious observation, a day. And that's called the the Feast of Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, and we'll get to that in Leviticus chapter 16. You you know about that because it's on our calendars, and it's also, um, if you hear the word scapegoat, that's where that, that word comes from, uh, from the Feast of Yom Kippur, which is, again, fulfilled in Jesus. All right, so speaking of Jesus, we get to chapter uh, 23, verse 20. It says this, Behold, oh, let me just back up to to verse, uh, the end of 19, it says, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And 
people think, well, where did this come from? This seems kind of odd. And Jews today who eat kosher, they won't have cheese on their their uh, cheeseburger, right? They won't have a cheeseburger because it's, they think it's the same thing. They want to observe this. And the the context here, you know, well, just think about this. It's One, it's just like painfully ironic for for that which is supposed to give life, milk, it would be that which would then cause death. It, you know, so for for a young goat to be boiled in its mother's milk is painfully disrespectful to the gift of life. Also, as I was reading about this, this was practiced by both Ishmaelites and Canaanites. They would do this, and so God is trying to make them different. And that's what we'll see. Some of these rules that we'll see that are kosher, it is just to be different. You are going to be my unique people. Don't be like them. Some of it has nothing to do with, you know, hygiene and all that stuff. Some of it may very well. I, Who am I to say why God gave these certain rules? But this one, um, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk, has um, both the religious aspect and also the idea of respecting life. Right, well, so speaking of Jesus, verse 20 there says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I've prepared. Remember in Genesis we saw a lot, a lot of times that there was an angel or the angel of the Lord. And then in the next sentence or two, he would it would be called the Lord. So is it the angel of the Lord or the Lord? And the answer is yes. I believe that this here also, an angel of the Lord, it could be any messenger of the Lord. But here it says that you are to obey the voice of this messenger of the Lord, that he, if you trust in him, he will pardon your sins and that he will fight for you. He will drive out the nations before you. Again, the way I read this is, this is not just any angel because we're not supposed to listen to other angels, but we are to listen to the Lord. I think this is Jesus going along with them and before them. Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians 10, picks this up and says that, uh, you know, and I think this is more, more metaphorical, but he says the rock that followed them was Christ. I think here the angel of the Lord that follows them and will drive out the other nations will is Christ. Again, uh, just one thing. It says, when you get to the land, it says, you shall not make you shall make no covenant with them and their gods. This is something that the Israelites would be guilty of of breaking many many times. They would make covenants again with Egypt and with the the other other tribes around them. And the reason this is, lots of reasons maybe forbidden, because to make a treaty with another nation, you make it in the name of their gods. And remember, God is saying, do not even call, don't call upon any of these other gods. Well, all right, so chapter 24, we get to the covenant that they're making. It will be confirmed. And so we see here it's confirmed with sacrifices where there's there's blood um, sacrifice, there are peace offerings and all that. There's the oath. How many times are the people saying, uh, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do it. At least a couple times here, plus in chapter 19. And in an interesting thing, it says that, that Moses and and then some of the the elders of the people, they they go up and they saw the God of Israel. This is chapter 24, verse 9. This is after they're, they're ratifying the, the covenant. The people 
there's sacrifices, there's the oath, and then there is God reveals himself to the people. And what they see, we don't know, other than it's described here, under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone. This is much in line with the other descriptions of God, and again, only showing uh, just a glimpse of his glory. We'll see this a little bit more in what well, Moses will sort of see God in, in in later chapters in Exodus, but but also if you look at the vision of, of Ezekiel chapter 1, Isaiah chapter 6, Revelation 4 and 5, these different places where God reveals himself in just a bit, there's, there's just un- indescribable color, rainbows and uh, light, God dwells in unapproachable light and so on. Here they are privileged to see God and they don't perish. What they see perhaps was probably veiled. Maybe again, this is that the angel of the Lord who is with them, Jesus, revealing himself to them. But it says this, that they, it says that they beheld God and they ate and drank. So in line with, with the, the customs of the day, when you ratify a covenant, you then eat a meal. It, it's almost like you can't do one without the other. You can't, you have to ratify the covenant and celebrate it with a meal. And so that's, pick this up in the New Testament. This is, this is just like the Passover, right? The Passover, they sacrifice the lamb and they eat the lamb. And here they, they say that they will obedient, they will be obedient to this, uh, this covenant with God. They want to be his people. And so they ratify it and they eat a meal. Right, this this covenant is conditional, as we've been saying. You get to the New Testament, and, and Jesus gives us the new covenant. Right? He says, this is the, the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sins. This is what he does in the upper room, and and he puts it into place. How How, how is it received and celebrated? With, of course, a meal. The Lord's Supper is a meal, and it is it is a foretaste, as we like to say, of the feast to come as uh, the new heavens and new earth is described in terms of of a feast, of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Check out also with that Isaiah chapter 26. All right, so then we see that God wants to dwell with his people, even though it says he describes him with glory and devouring fire there on the mountain. He wants to then come and dwell with his people. He knows that unless he veils himself, he will destroy the people because uh, they don't have they don't have a, a holy suit, I guess we could say, and so he he tells Moses, chapter twenty five, the Lord said to Moses, and that's one of seven times you get that phrase here coming up in in the rest of Exodus. The Lord is speaking to Moses, and he says, you know, speak to the people uh, that they may take for me a contribution, and so he's not demanding anything of the people. He, it's a free will offering that the people are asked to give. By the way, the so Mount Moses is up on the mountain, and this is the very ironic thing. So I just want to keep this in mind that God is going to say, I'm going to dwell with my people. You're going to make a, a sanctuary or a tabernacle, a tent, all those are the same, that I might dwell with them. And he, he said, tells Moses, you're going to ask the people to give whatever they want. The crazy thing is, and you have to put this in, in the timeline, Moses is up on the mountain We'll read later that while Moses is up there getting the words of God about this, how they're going to live, down below, the people are waiting for Moses, and 
they get impatient and they make their own contribution and it is not it is not according to God's will to make a sanctuary rather it is to make a golden calf a god they can see how crazy is this they've been saying everything god says we will do we will not call on the names of other gods he will be our god yes yes we will do this and then down below in their impatience and their own seeking control they are giving all their golden earrings so that 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 Aaron of all people will craft this calf out of gold and they will bow down and say this is Yahweh no they don't get it anyway just keep that in mind that they will need forgiveness for this and so in this description in chapter 25 it talks about the ark of the covenant and this is really important on the top of the ark is what's called uh, the mercy seat it's another word for lid but it or covering that word covering is what will happen on the mercy seat. God will dwell there and as the blood of, of the goats, again, uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when the blood of the goats once a year is sprinkled on that place uh, and the blood itself covers that place, God will then cover the sins of his people. God will dwell there, speak to Moses, to the high priest, and will cover his people's sins this is an important thing it says in Romans chapter 3 that Jesus became the the mercy seat or became the covering uh, also we can see that with uh, the the parable that Jesus tells of the tax collector and the the publican the or, sorry the tax collector and the Pharisee it says there in that prayer that the tax collector is beating his breast and he says he won't even look up to heaven but he says God mercy me god propitiate me god it's the same word here as mercy seat god make a covering for my sin he's asking for that which god provided here in in the sanctuary this means to be forgiven through the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat he says take that and cover my sin and that is uh, you know jesus is telling that story that parable knowing that he himself would be the blood that would sprinkle to make all people clean. Whew. Wow. All right. Thank you, God. All right. Well, we get to, uh, let's let's turn our attention to, to the words of Jesus in Matthew uh, chapter 25, chapter 24. And Jesus, whew, he's talking about his coming again. Yesterday, I hope you weren't overwhelmed, but Jesus is basically telling us two things, right? This temple will be destroyed. Jerusalem will incur um uh, uh, a punishment, a very severe tribulation. Their house will become desolate. And so he says to his church, when you see these things coming, in my interpretation, when you see the Roman military marching in to surround uh, the temple and, and the temple mount and to uh, then, you know, uh, make an, an uh, abominating, desolating sacrilege, Flee, flee to the mountains. So that's what he says to his church who's in Jerusalem. But then he's also talking to all of us who will come afterwards. And he will he'll, he he reminds us that his coming won't be secret. It will not be a little tiny thing where someone has to say, There he is, there's the Christ, or over there, that's where he is. Or he came over there for his secret people. No. He says it's like lightning flashing from one part of the sky to the other. Everyone 
will see it. It will not be a secret coming. That's where we left yesterday. Today, we pick up in in Matthew 24, verse 29. He says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Something is going on, something monumental. And it says this, he says this, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Now, we don't know exactly what that is. What is the sign of the Son of Man? It's something like what he said a moment ago, like lightning flashing from heaven. Maybe as we read in, in Revelation 19, and I don't know if this is figurative, it says that, that he will come again riding on a white horse. Maybe his sign is the horse appearing, himself appearing. Uh, some of the church fathers guessed and said it's the sign of the cross in the sky. We don't know, but it's whatever it is, we can see it. And here's the thing. Jesus says, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. When they see the sign of the Son of Man, those who have been opposed to Jesus will mourn. Check out also, along with this, Revelation 1, verse 7. And that's a, that's a citation of, I believe it's Zechariah 14. Check that out. All right, well, they will see the Son of the Man coming. How will he come on the clouds of heaven? Again, not secret. All will see. He's coming with power and great glory. And again, this is just like Daniel predicted, Daniel chapter 7. And he'll send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. All right, and then he says, uh, when you see these things, when you, when you see them coming, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. What all these things are, we don't know, but it's it's something about the lightning flashing in the sky, which is a figure of him coming. It is the sign of his coming. All of that. Again, it's not wars and rumors of wars. He said that's going to be commonplace. So it's not a messed up world. It's something else. We need to be ready for him coming. He could come today. We don't, we don't need to wait for the temple to rebuilt to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. We don't need to wait for anything. The only thing possibly we might need to wait for is, as he says, the gospel will be preached in every nation. But I think it has, I think it has been preached in every nation in this day. And so he says, then the end will come. That's earlier on what we read yesterday. All right, well, some have said that, well, there will be a secret coming of Jesus that is called the rapture. And again, um, I think I got his name wrong. His name is uh, John Nelson Darby. He's the guy that invented this idea that Jesus will come secretly for his people. Um, he lived in the 1800s. I think 18. he was born in 1800 and he lived maybe 72 years. John Nelson Darby invented this doctrine that is very common. If you go to any non-denominational church, like where I went, Moody Bible Institute, it was just a, a given. There will be a rapture, right? And you see these bumper stickers. You don't see them much anymore, but, um, you know, even I was watching the show the other day and there was a bumper sticker with this is, in the event of rapture, uh, watch out for my, you know, uh, my, watch out for my car, something like that, you know. Um, so many, many people believe this, but in the in they'll use some of this text that we're going to read right here, um, and also, by the way, many false prophets, I, I said this before, many false prophets have, if they've said when Jesus comes back, you can instantly right there say, well, that person is a false prophet. And let me just, uh, 
lots of people have predicted the exact day when Jesus would come. So there are, there are some, uh, there's this guy, William Miller. You may not know of him, but he's the person who founded the Adventist movement, the Seventh-day Adventist. He said that Jesus would come back in 1843. It didn't happen, so he said, well, 1844. Again, it didn't happen. Um, another guy you may have heard of named Joseph Smith. He is the founder of the Latter-day Saints or the Mormons. He made many false predictions about when Jesus would come, that he lived in the early 1800s. You may have heard of this guy, Charles Taze Russell. He is the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses. He said that the world would end in 1914. Didn't happen. Uh, other guys named, like another guy named Lester Sum Sumrall, never heard of him, but he was a Pentecostal missionary. He said that Jesus would come back in 2000. Uh, Jean Dixon is a, a Roman Catholic realtor, and she predicted that Jesus would come back in the 1980s. Hal Lindsey, you've probably heard of him. He was born in 1929 and still around. He wrote, The Late Great Planet Earth. He said that Jesus, the rapture rather, would take place in 1981 and that the world would end in 1988. And uh, since then, he's come up with other dates. You've heard of this guy, Pat Robertson. He was born in 1930. He is the founder of the Christian Broadcasting Network. He also ran for president in 1988. He said that uh, Christ would return in 1982. Did you vote for him? Another guy named Benny Hinn, who's still around there, a, a tele-evangelist who was born in 1953. He predicted that Christ would return in 1993. I can automatically tell you that even if these guys are well-intentioned, they are false prophets according to Jesus. Why do we know? Because Jesus himself said this, Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. What is Jesus talking about? Does he know now when he's coming back? I think so. I think what he's talking about is Philippians chapter 2 where it says that the son uh, emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. On earth, Jesus limited his, his knowledge um, just like he limited his power. As he's ascended back to heaven, I believe he has all power and he, um, he operates it. He has all knowledge. He knows when he co will come back. All right, well, anyway, I said this, this paragraph starting at verse 36 has been used as evidence for the rapture. Why do I disagree? Check it out. Verse 37 says, for as we're, for as we're well, let me flip, go down to verse 40. People who believe in the rapture say this, two men will be in the, in the field, one will be taken and one left. Watch out. Jesus is going to come secretly and take one of them. They'll say, verse 41, two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Right, so Jesus is going to come back for one of them. But they think to be taken is, is a good thing. But in this context, I know all the elect, all the chosen will be gathered by the angels when Christ returns. But I believe in this context, to be taken is not a good thing. It's to be taken away to judgment. Why do I say that? Because of what Jesus says in verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So in other words, Jesus is saying here, just like in the days of Noah, to be taken away is not a good thing. It's to be taken into judgment. And it's so sad, uh, especially some of these words like they were unaware and all this stuff. So... 
uh, reminds us that we need to be ready. And as we are being ready, we are ready by faith in Jesus, uh, the mercy seat man, uh, Lord. While we are here, we can be like Noah and we can be preaching, proclaiming, sharing, loving. We can be building an ark. And uh, by the way, the church that that uh, I'm pastor of St. Paul's, I love how it is built like an ark, the holy ark of the Christian church, as some of the church fathers called it. It even has little waves crashing in, these waves of temptation. But there, at that place, uh, we are surrounded by God's presence when we're safe from the temptations of the world, the, the waves of temptation. And so we hold on to faith. So as Jesus said here, stay awake, be ready. Why do we go to church? Is it so that we can go to heaven? Well, we go to church so that we can receive what God has for us there, so that we can hold on to faith and not fall away. All right, well, there's a lot there, including Jesus warning about uh, those who those who would give, put themselves in the place of hypocrites and not be ready. Uh, he talks about hell, I believe, five or six times in this, this Gospel of Matthew. Okay, I went very long today. I am so sorry. If you made it to the end, you deserve a Snickers. All right. God's peace to you all. Go in peace. Serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.